Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. When Di Morrissey writes a book, you'll know you'll get a good story and a well-researched history of a place. Last year, the book Di Morrissey came in to chat with me about was rain music, and I learned a lot about Cooktown. So welcome back, Di. Thank you, Jan. Lovely to be here. Oh, look, absolutely. And the cover of your new book is very Australian. But this book doesn't even start in Australia. Where have you got Babs and young son Joey making a home? In Palm Desert, California, which is right next door to Palm Springs. And it's a place I actually know quite well. And I chose it because the bulk, as you know, of my books are always, you know, Australian themed and Australian set. But I wanted to follow the journey of a of a young woman in the 1960s who takes this enormous leap and journey. And I wanted like two places that were so totally opposite. And I thought the bulk of the book is set on a riverina sheep stud. What could be further away from a riverina sheep stud than Palm Springs, California, 1962? Absolutely. (laughs) But, you know, once again, you've given us a little bit of the history of Palm Springs. Of course, just how it developed being this Mm. desert and this natural spring coming up that was Mm. good for you, healthy. So people came there as a more resort a resort town it yeah, it was for it was a you know uh, springs for the for the health and people went there in the winter uh, but of course it's only two hours from Hollywood ah. so soon enough in the 40s and 50s you know Bob Hope started golf courses and Frank Sinatra built his piano shaped pool and everybody was sort of there and it also had from the 70s amazing architecture which is now preserved because it was the first time they had all that sweeping glass and and yeah. things and it's uh, it's quite an extraordinary place and and it's a very glamorous expensive place where the hoi polloi polloi go to retire Ah. so yes so it's this eisenhower and you know you name it another bit was just the property development you know sort of the suburban blocks came out and you say they um took over general Patton's tank repair facility Yes, that that's that from the war. That's that's where it was, and yes, yeah, so the the land because the land belongs to the Indians, mm. and uh, which was just of course they just took. Uh, but of course now, um, since you know there've been issues over land rights as well, they they now own the valuable property that has um, the because, gaming casinos on it. Yes, mm. yes. There's a few cultural. Maybe differences. that's what we need out in out in the in in the in the, in the outback. A few more gaming casinos. Someone oh, should speak I'm to just, Mr. Packer. <laughs> Just what we need. <laughs> you mentioned a few cultural differences too, because I I know this about America, and it always makes me laugh, especially in a desert area that uh, would have all of this hot wind and everything. But you can't put your washing outside. Oh no, no, it's uh, it's 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 dusty, and everybody has air conditioning. And Americans don't know what a hill's hoist is. No one ever has. It's all machinery. Yes, yeah. yes. So it's incredible. Yes. Oh, you see, I married an American, so I mean, I kind of reversed it. I married an American, and you think that Amer- you know America because they speak English, and they're not that different to the Poms, are they? And then you get there and find they're a total race apart, and it was very sort of you know, it was a huge culture shock, and silly little things were what really drove you. 
nuts. So I wanted to reverse it to have Cindy coming out to Australia and having having come from all mod cons in the 60s and the 70s to be faced with a fuel wood-burning stove oh. and a really run-down house because all the money uh, goes into the land, into the property. And so, to the breeding of the sheep, yes, the merino sheep. Yes, yes. Well, this is where she did. Well, first of all, we have Babs setting, starting her new life in Palm Springs as a seamstress, you know, and making really beautiful uh, outfits for, for children to sell to wealthy parents. And then along comes Babs's older sister, Alice. <laughs> oh, did I, I, now, she really knows how to run a business, doesn't she? And she's always been overpowering as a big sister. Di Morrissey, you must know people like Alice. Well, I do. Um, one in particular whom I can't name, but... Um I when she, I mean I had her, her as an inspiration, but when she turned up on the page, I suddenly thought, you know who she sounds like. I thought a kind of American version of Maggie Smith in Downton Abbey. Uh-huh. You know, she's got that sort of snooty. <laughs> say as say it as it is. Never really quite give a compliment. There's always something no, no. better that can no, be no, done. No, no, she's the sort of woman, that the real woman that, that, that I knew that you haven't seen for years and years and years and you know frightfully well. She drives across the country to come and visit you. She gets out of the car looking totally immaculate mm. and her first words to you after all this time are, what have you done with your hair? It looks dreadful. <laughs> <laughs> I think we all know that, yeah, that type of person that's Alice. Like But they set up a very good business and then to the doorstep of Babs's house comes Cindy. What What's she doing there? Cindy's 15 and run away from home mm. because she can't stand up her stepmother back back in Spokane. Uh, and so she knows she's got this lovely, warm-hearted aunt and a, and a, and a very, you know, uh, more stricter kind of uh, practical Alice now living in Palm Springs. So at 15, she runs away and turns up on the doorstep and her life changes. Her life certainly does change. But we think everything's going to go right. You know, Cindy's at university. She's got a handsome boyfriend who wants to be a lawyer. All things are on track. And I'm sort of reading this and thinking... Well, I know one of them is going to come to <laughs> come to Australia, but which one? <laughs> which was clever. Yeah, clever bit of writing. And don't forget too, it's the it's set in the sixties through to really to the mm, the, the the nineties. So I didn't like to just kind of put a date at the end of the top of the chapter. So I think by the events that happen and the clothes and things, you 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 work out. That, uh, talking you know. about every chapter, we have a little photograph, black and white photograph, which yeah, is really lovely. You know, sort of scene so, setting. Mm, yeah, scene setting. Yes. So it's Cindy. Well, there's a very quick wedding or because you know things have to be decent <laughs> and she she makes her way to Kingsley Downs Yambula between Deneliquin and Hay and what a change uh, her husband Murray Pannell uh, just well he and his father live in a large house but why doesn't she want to live there she doesn't want to live there because uh, she, it's the father-in-law's house, oh. domain, mm. uh, which he, he rules uh, with a housekeeper. And there is a constant strange silence about the absence of the her the new you know, mother-in-law. mother-in-law. Um, and mm. uh, uh, yes, and the, you know, so the, you know, this, there's this issue of, uh, which still goes on, of secession in, in you know, families on the, on, on the mm. land. So uh, she thought she was marrying a, a, you know, a well-to-do man and they'd start a happy married life together. And <laughs> never, <laughs> never. Not quite the way she planned. And how does her father-in-law Lawrence treat her? 
terribly. Oh, it was no, just horrible, yes. wasn't you, it? You want, yeah, she wanted to slap him. So she decided to move out with her husband, who is, Murray is lovely. You know, he's well regarded in the society and um, very well regarded. Um, into this dump. This <laughs> it's the original homestead untouched in 1897, really. <laughs> Coming from Palm Springs of the oh. glass and mod cons, remember? So, yes, a bit of a trial for Cindy as a new bride. And it's the isolation also. But she she never uh, lacks her inability to learn. You know, she has to get over the wood fire oven and the, the manual driving and the generators and talking on the party line telephone and always feeling like the outsider. And Yes, there was that kind. Of, that's that cultural thing about always being when you're a foreigner fitting in. Yeah, mm. so uh, that's part of the exploration of how we see Cindy change over two or three decades. Mm. With her mantra, "I love my husband. I'm here for an adventure. I'm going to make the best of it." Now, some of the most lovely writing was uh, talking about the weather in your book. You know, you had sunsets and you had mornings. And droughts and floods. And, uh, droughts and floods and oh, <laughs> life on the tornadoes, land. which were incredible coping mm. with. Some of the most, inc- yeah, the poetic writing was kept for the uh, sunsets and oh, the sunrises. In fact, how about we have a little bit of that sunrise now? Oh, okay. The change of seasons came softly, sneaking in during the night, so that when Cindy awoke, the air had a different smell and the dawn colours were newly bright, a melting pot of splashed paint. Watching the streaming light, she wondered again at the miraculous melange of hues. In all the years she'd been at Kingsley Downs, the unveiling of the morning always awed her. Yeah, we get views of the horizon through the different windows, and I've got to say, it's flat. There's no yeah. hills there. It's all flat. <laughs> but it is the colour mm. that that I think is described beautifully. Well, from the outside to the industry, the wool industry. We get quite a bit of a, a history of the wool industry that you've given to us about the the breeds of merino sheep for a start. Yes, the pepper merino comes from down there, our most famous uh, um, merino breed. Uh, and it, yes, it's a, it's a fascinating story. But we've got. I wanted to explore through well, one of the reasons I also chose that era from going from riding of the country, riding on the sheep's back, and all of those well-to-do wealthy graziers to ni- February 1991 when the wool stockpile was finally slashed, and it was the biggest corporate collapse in in Australia. And suddenly, you know, these wealthy graziers are out there shooting all their sheep. Oh, uh, so, yeah. It's quite a story. It is. Well, and the way you've intermeshed it, because Lawrence, the father-in-law, is really up there with the wool board. You know, at the commencement of the wool board, mm-hmm. so and we the get political machinations, yeah. and the business interests that come in, like Mister Packer coming mm-hmm. through. You know, mm-hmm. in his hallig- in his um, plane, and also because um, Cindy's family were involved in the fashion industry, it was the the, the synthetics that were putting them out of business. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. Uh, Cindy's aunt, who comes at this, the dreaded Alice, who comes to visit, dressed in polyester to yes. visit the sheep farm. Yeah, the silk, you know. Well, of course you would. <laughs> and of course, uh, one of the the wool growers' wife says, "Oh, these synthetics—they're just a fad." Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> not being able to read it. So we we. We follow the wool industry through the family saga and um, we, we do jump in times 
But this one time when Alice actually comes from Palm Springs to visit Cindy, because it's also a change in times and we have women's lib coming through. And I'd like you to read the words that Alice says to Cindy. Fighting words. Wow. Cindy's feeling a bit fragile. She doesn't know where to turn. Should she stay? Should she go? You know, it all is starting to get a bit too much for her. Alice picks this up straight away and says, Cindy, this is my final word on the subject, said Alice very crisply. And that is, you need to stand up to Lawrence. Show him some backbone. Lawrence is the father-in-law. You have every right. Take control of your life and don't let anyone walk all over you. He's a man who takes advantage of the weak. It'll only get worse. If you don't stand your ground now, you'll regret it. Do it for Murray too. He can't, so you'll just have to do it yourself. Cindy drew a shaky breath. She knew Alice was right. (laughs) She did. So we have this confrontation coming up. And then we jump ahead a a bit more and... um, the first grandchild's about to come and that the search for a special little lucky charm leads to um, finding something that turns the end of the book from a saga to a thriller. <laughs> it was really good, that last bit. Well, well, you, the, you didn't pick it? No, no. No one has. I'm so oh, pleased. <laughs> but it was, so, look, there are topics covered. Domestic violence, growth in uh, women's liberation, Um Strong female characters. Now you've you've always given us strong female ca- characters, but this one had one of the one of the female characters in it. Her name N G A I R E. Nairi. Nairi. Now I think I've only ever met one Nairi before in my whole <laughs> life. So you know, do you have a Nairi that you needed to put in, or were you just sort no, of running through? No, I don't know. It was names? a vague name that just sprung to my head because this is my twenty-fourth book. Yes. So it's like my editor keeps saying, "No, you've used that name. <laughs> Find another." <laughs> well, another good book. A new life, a new country, but with a family that has a tragic secret. Di Morrissey, yeah, I think you'll find that there'll be many women who will have this book in their Christmas shopping list. Great. Yeah, and I <laughs> can understand why. So Di Morrissey, A Distant Journey, published by Macmillan. Thank you once again, Di. Thank you, Jan. A pleasure. Well, I've got another Christmas special because crime pays, Jan, especially if you're an author and have a good story to tell. But what if you are a corrupt policeman? Now, Duncan McNabb looks at the exploits of one of New South Wales' most decorated policemen who forged a life of crime for himself. That man was Roger Rogerson, the rogue, the larrikin. Um, So, Duncan, welcome to 3CR. Good morning and thank you. (laughs) Now, we need to set a bit of the background for this. Roger Rogerson is currently in jail, serving a life sentence for the murder of Jamie Gow. What happened there? In oh, On the 20th of May 2014, Roger and his compatriot Glenn McNamara, a copper we all thought was scrupulously honest, a man who hated drugs, fought against pedophiles, um, hated corruption publicly, um, they went to a very quiet little part of Padstow, New South Wales, a storage unit where Jamie had been lured by Glenn to do a drug deal. Jamie bought along three kilograms of ice, the currently fashionable and horrific drug, um, and Roger and Glenn were going to buy it from him and then distribute it through their criminal networks. Jamie bought the ice. Roger and Glenn didn't bring the money. They bought a gun, and that was the end of Jamie. 
Well, that sets the background. But, I mean, you've got somebody here um, who was almost a legend in policing. He was a born leader, Roger Rogerson. Um, but doubts arose about him um, shortly after uh, the shooting of one drug dealer, Warren LaFranchi, in 1981. Yes, Roger, Warren LaFranchi was a major drug dealer in Sydney and a wild kid, completely mad would be a, probably fairly accurate. Um, he was working with a fellow called Nettie Smith, who Roger also knew extremely well. Um, the story goes that Roger and uh, Nettie had heard reports that Warren was watering down the stuff he was selling on their behalf and pocketing the balance. Not a bad way to make a quid. Very common in drug world. Roger and Warren met in Dangar Place in Chippendale in a city, June 1981. Um, Roger walked out after shooting Warren dead. Roger said it was in self-defence and a coroner's jury believed him. Oh, sorry, I got the wrap and put this around the other way. The coroner's jury said that Roger was acting in his duties as a policeman, but they refused to find that he was acting in self-defence. And that's where Roger's career started taking a bit of a tumble. And then also, uh, Rogerson ended up in jail for perverting the course of justice and a few other things like this. So he had spent his time... Oh, he's been, he's been to jail twice. The first time was he was caught red-handed uh, with $110,000 putting into a fake bank account that he'd set up and trying to say it was all legit. Well, it wasn't. It was probably from heroin sales uh, in conjunction with a famous Melbourne chap called Dennis Dr. Death Allen, probably one of the most horrific criminals uh, in Victoria's history and member of the uh, Pettengill family, which I think they became very famous when Jackie Weaver played the matriarch in Animal Kingdom. Kingdom yes. Well, he was Roger's playmate way back when. Um, Roger denied, of course, that there was any problem with that, but he went to jail for perverting the course of justice. And in 1999, he gave evidence to the Police Integrity Commission about some shonky deals he was involved in, and Roger gave chapter and verse on oath. Then the council assisting the commission pushed the play button and there was Roger saying exactly the opposite. So Roger went in for lying. Mm. That now you've got two very interesting characters. You've, you've set the background for Glenn McNamara mm. who basically uh, was a whistleblower yep. uh, who uh, caused a lot of uh, problems for a lot of people. Oh yeah. Um, and so you've, you've got these characters, both detectives, both with uh, background and knowledge of the police force. Mm. One, Glenn, totally seemingly against corruption and drugs and Rogerson taking advantage and taking the cream off the top mm. and playing games and ripping people off. And then uh, years later, they kill Jamie Gow um, and think they can get away with it. And at the time, Rogerson was 73 this is what I'm starting. I'm, I'm so perplexed by the psychology of these two blokes as, mm. uh, as in what comes out in this book. What compelled them to do it, do you think? In Roger's case, and Roger's in the relationship between the two, Roger was always the dominant party. And I reckon Glenn has had a, had a distant bromance of which Roger was unaware. Going back to Lanfranchi and McNamara wrote in his book, he wrote himself into the Lanfranchi episode. Completely utterly wrong, of course. I spoke to his workmate who said, no, we didn't do any of that. We were 20 miles away. Well, that's, an, that's an interesting issue. Um, Roger was always the dominant partner. Glenn was always, I think, looking around for that strong character to attach himself to. And you don't get more strong, you don't get much stronger than Roger. 
Um, so that's how they came into each other's orbit. Yeah, Ro- Mac- McNamara was in some ways looking for acknowledgement because being a whistleblower, he was then ostracised. So he was sort of wanting to mm. be acknowledged and brought back into the fold. Yeah, I think it rankled with him for his entire life that he left the police force with a bit of a cloud surrounding him. He didn't get the career he thought he was entitled to, which is in part of why he was so vindictive towards some senior police that he believed caused his downfall. And it was uh, he was committed to ruining their careers, and he got away with it. Well, now, this starts to get into some of the intriguing aspects. The role of the media in this, because McNamara, in many ways let out rumours or some of the information he let out ruined people's careers. And at the same time, Rogerson was taking advantage, after he'd been released from Mm. jail, uh, taking advantage of the media as a sort of rogue uh, with expert knowledge into the workings of the police and how he was hard done by. Mm. So I'm just wondering what the role of the media was here in shaping or forging or Uh, assisting their careers. A large chunk of the media should... Blame's probably not quite the right word, but they didn't ask enough questions. Um, way back in the old days, and it was the same in Melbourne and, Victoria, and, and in Sydney as well and probably in Queensland, um, while all this corruption was going on, the police just kept feeding the media with good yarns. So they didn't ask anywhere near enough questions, and it wasn't until the Fairfax publication, the National Times, way back in the very early 80s, stopped reporting what the police were telling them and started asking really hard questions and honest coppers went to them and said well actually the truth is this and all of a sudden the media game changed a lot but men like Roger and McNamara continued to enjoy some media freedom because they delivered a great story no one questioned them they were charming they were affable and they had this really great yarn to spin to you so a lot of journalists didn't ask sufficient questions what you've got here rogerson's knack for public relations had picked up on the ongoing law and order debate which called for tough men and tough penalties and a return to the good old days of policing a popular theme with the nation's shock jocks as they peddled their well uh, their ill-informed views on morning radio roger the ex-felon was rebuilding his image as the grand old man of crime fighting and as a man persecuted because he was too good at keeping the public safe. Mm. So it's, 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 a, it's a recurring Rogerson theme, and going back to when he first put his head up on television on Channel 9 way back in the 80s, um, he was always the aggrieved man, the victim, the tough copper being picked on by the new breed who didn't quite have the balls to be as good as he was. And he picked that theme up again after he got out of jail in 2006. The law and order debate, as usual, pops back up. So rather than resolve crimes, we're just going to say how hard we are. And Roger was at the forefront of that. Alan Jones, the big broadcaster in New South Wales, I think around Australia these days, at one point said, we need more men like Roger Rogerson. I don't think we do. <laughs> but here we go then. They then kill Jamie Gow mm-hmm. in a crime that was virtually captured on CCTV footing, uh, footage, all but the actual shooting of the gun. Mm. What compelled them? What made them think they could get away with it? They, the crime was actually really, really well planned, but like that old military theme, um, the plan goes out the window the first, after the first shot. Well, in this case, the plan went out the window before the first shot. It was meticulous. They had everything sorted. They had the equipment they needed minus one block and tackle they've forgotten about. Um, 
they had the site planned. They had their methodology of how they were going to go from A to B. They had a fake car set up, sorry, a dodgy car set up, all this sort of stuff. Really, really well planned. And what they were going to do with Jamie, all sorted. What they didn't notice was at the rendezvous point, they forgot to notice that there was a CCTV camera keeping an eye on the car park of a butcher shop. And they missed it. The coppers, however, didn't. So that one little key piece of evidence suddenly unlocked all the other CCTV cameras all the way to the killing site, which then identified who the murderers were because they thought Jamie Gale would disappear, the drugs would disappear, no one would know. Unfortunately, that one little CCTV camera tipped the game and all of a sudden you've got virtually three and a half hours worth of vision from the storage unit to the apartment in the lift of the apartment after the job well done, we've got a six-pack of beer, let's go and have one. CCTV footage of them buying a block and tackle to lift the body because they're too old to lift the body after the crime. Glenn's not the most practical man, so they've got got the dodgy station wagon set up. That's cool. But they then put the body on the ground, and Glenn's pretty fit, but Roger's hopeless, and he's not that tall, and the boat was quite high up. And they were going to drop the body in at sea, but they forgot to puncture the body. Correct. (laughs) So it would sink. And I'm probably unkindly suggest that Roger, being a stingy character, didn't want to spend any more money on chains to weigh the poor kid down. But here is one of the crimes, if you could call it that. You talk about a gun that was going to be used, and Mm. so Roger's got his contacts. He can get a gun. Mm. Now, you pay a fee for the use of this gun. It's untraceable. And you can return the gun and say to the person you borrowed it from, look, I haven't used it, so the fee's lighter. But he did use it. But he still tells his mate that it hasn't been used and therefore he saves a dollar or two. Which gives you a really good insight into the character of Roger Rogerson. Which This is what is so compelling about this book, that the, the mentality of these people, Roger and Glenn, mm. um, and the reasons which you can never really truly fathom. You, you've got to mull it over. But it seems it wasn't necessarily the money, it was the deal that was the compelling factor. Yeah, Roger, I, I think in Roger's career, the money has always been important to him. He's a greedy sod and he's stingy. Mm. But in corruption and crime, the money gets you to the power. If you don't have the money, you don't get the power. And if you've, if you've got the power, you get the money with it. So the two are, in, two are in, integrally linked. But it's Roger, it's always been about the game, being on stage, being the one everyone looks at and respects. But... You'd think as a detective, okay, if I can pay a little bit extra to ensure the gun will disappear forever, then Mm. that's one less element that can be traced to me. But also, if he's got it off a mate, why rip your mate off? That's what most of Roger's mates still scratch their head over. Roger had a a group of friends, you know, honest, simple, hardworking people as well. And talking to them, they just think, what has he done to us? Well, here's the other guy. What's the sort of outcome then uh, for the police force, the sort of legacy he's left for those that were friends who were doing the, the right thing? His friends in the police force left him quite some time ago, fortunately. Mm. Um, the police force has moved on. They now Roger went, and Roger, up until very recently, shortly before his arrest, would go to police functions and he'd get the rounds of applause and we need more Roger Rogersons as well. Maybe his arrest and conviction and people now actually working out how deeply appalling the man was, maybe they finally get the message. Mm. But you're an Mm ex-detective yourself. How is it that you didn't get sort of sucked in like 
uh, McNamara and Rogerson. What is it that drives somebody to fall? You like roughly that? get three choices, I suppose, uh, particularly in those days. You either get on with the game and join the people like Roger Rogerson to uh, at different levels. You know, you might make a quid here and there and you might turn a blind eye. Escalating up to the appalling behaviour of Roger, you've got the middle ground, which is a large chunk of the police force, honest, hard-working. It's very easy, and I have to stop myself sometimes because I get a bit wound up about it. Uh, it's easy to criticise them for not doing anything, just for ignoring it, pretending it's not happening. But you've got to look at these people. They've got careers, they've got responsibilities, families, mortgages. It's bloody hard to say no, but they do. And it's also bloody hard to take the third option, which is to get really annoyed about it and get angry and start talking. Well, you, I mean, McNamara did talk. He was a whistleblower, mm. and, but virtually was ostracised for it. So there's a disincentive. Yeah, McNamara became a whistleblower when he was caught with his fingers <laughs> in the till. <laughs> uh, the, the, the Glenn McNamara story about Glenn McNamara is the whistleblower. The true story about Glenn McNamara is he's in King's Cross in 1989. Mm. Drug dealers, pedophiles, everything's happening. Glenn's picking up a few. Glenn has joined the dark side. Yes. Not to a high degree, but he's joined it. And he's spotted by surveillance. In those days in King's Cross, there was surveillance on surveillance on surveillance. He spots it, thinks to himself, uh-oh, they've caught me. So he takes preemptive action. He runs down to the internal security and says, have I got a story for you? And then he casts himself as the avenging angel, the whistleblower with a heart of gold. He was just some shonk who was caught. But that potential for corruption I think probably lies within us all. Duncan unfortunately we're going to have to finish the interview. It is a fascinating read into one of Australia's most notorious characters, Roger Rogerson. Basically Roger Rogerson from decorated policeman to convicted criminal the inside story and it's a Hache publication. Thank you. Thank you very much.